We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Wyrock, and I'm joined by my co-host, Brandon Poen and F. Scott Field. And today we welcome Terry Pratt to our podcast. Terry Pratt is a faculty and an examiner for NIAMS and the clinical director of Greater Brunswick Physical Therapy in Maine, where he resides. Terry received his MSPT from Andrews University in 1997 and his fellowship of AOMP in 2013 through NIOMP. He teaches nationally and internationally for NIOMP and online for MedBridge Education. He has presented at multiple APTA chapter conferences. He has also written a home study course for the APTA orthopedic section addressing rehabilitation of the lumbar spine after a motor, motor vehicle accident. His passion is instructing clinicians how to implement current research and evidence with the realities of a busy clinical practice. Thanks for coming on today, Terry, and for all the support of your podcast since the beginning. We definitely owe it to our listeners and yourself for helping us push our message out there. Uh, Do you think that you could give us some background on your PT career and how you ended up getting involved with teaching with NIOMPT? Sure. Well, thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to be part of this uh, podcast. I've enjoyed your format, and I've learned a lot um, being able to listen. And I travel a lot, so it's nice uh, in transit. I get to listen to a lot of different podcasts, and yours is is one of the ones that's on the top of my list. So I really appreciate it. And well, we uh, appreciate it, Terry. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, I feel honored to hear that. <laughs> oh well, you know it's it's really uh, it's it's nice uh, because uh, you have some really good quality guests that uh, that I really uh, respect and look up to, and you're reaching across several different uh, several different uh, uh, continuing education realms and different levels of education. So I think uh, I think it's wonderful. So uh, thank you again. Um, as far as my career is concerned, I've been a PT for going on 21 years. I was actually born and raised in Canada, and then I came down to the United States to get a master's degree. And so I came down, and then after uh, meeting my wife 15 years ago, decided to stay in the United States. Um, and so I've had a real interesting journey to go from to fellowship because it took me a while, and I think some of the struggles that that uh, uh, people are having today going through fellowship and, and some of the confusion I, I actually dealt with as well because it's like, wow, there's the expense and time component. 
So I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to take one of my first courses coming out of PT school, uh, going into NIOMP. So after that first course, I was like, wow, I would love to do that. I'd love to be a fellow. So it started in 97 and it took me um, almost 13 years to actually become a fellow at that point. And uh, along the journey, I was able to um, expose myself not just to NIOMP material, but I was able to uh, take courses from uh, Brian Mulligan. And one of my teachers was uh, Mike O'Hearn, who teaches for the Maitland Institute. And um, I was able to work in different areas like Colorado and uh, Seattle, Washington. I came and settled in Maine. So uh, my journey was longer than most. I had to juggle family, work visas, uh, living in a geographically remote region of the country before we had Skype. And uh, so I was slowly going through NIOMPT and I took courses from like Diane Lee, LJ Lee, Jenny McConnell, David Butler. And I felt fortunate to have a wide variety of experiences. I entered my fellowship program in 2010 and graduated in 2013. And I was able to be mentored by uh, Earl Petman and uh, Gail Malloy and Ann Porter Hoke, who uh, uh, was trained by James Syriax as well. So um, that's kind of uh, uh, it, it, the short version of, of my journey through fellowship. But uh, there was uh, a lot of uh, little steps along the way to get me there. No, I love it. And thank you for that, Terry, because I think that definitely brought some perspective in there. And you know, today the topic is, of course, talking about kind of the, your perspective teaching within a PT fellowship program. But kind of before we get into that, something that I got to ask you is, of course, you know, with the burden of DPT student debt and the financial constraints out there with going with, you know, going through PT school and then a fellowship program. And now with the requirements to take place in January 2020, um, with now requiring to complete re- either a residency program or obtain orthopedic board certification. You know, my question is, you know, what type of person, you know, based on if they have certain goals or career path they want to go, what type of person should actually consider doing a fellowship program in this day and age based on these barriers that exist? You know, that's a very good question. Um, and all those factor, factors you mentioned are, are important considerations when you're thinking about going into a fellowship per- program. But I recommend it for individuals who are not just interested in teaching, because I think sometimes that's the the mindset. It's like, oh, I'm going to get a fellowship. I, I'm going to be able to teach. But I think it's for those who want to be pushed to reach the highest potential in physical therapy. Not every fellowship program is the same, um, and the rules, as as we had mentioned, <laughs> appear to be continuing to change. But I feel that anyone who's going to be a future manager, a teacher, or a leader in outpatient physical therapy should be as part of the, you know part of the program. Um, I also need to mention that uh, even though fellowships are in orthopedic manual therapy, like my fellowship, it's changing. So. Yes, I'm a manual therapist and I do spinal manipulation, but that isn't my goal. So I think if you look at a fellowship program and say, hey, um, that person's just going to manipulate, then then we're kind of missing the big picture. Uh, at the Interne- IFOMP meeting, International Federation of Orthopedic uh, Manual Therapists in, in Scotland a couple years ago, uh, Carolyn Richardson mentioned that we almost should change the term to musculoskeletal physical therapist or physiotherapist because I think it's getting that well-roundedness. So it's not just manipulation, it's neuromuscular re-education, it's neurodynamics, it's clinical reasoning. So, and I think that sometimes you can get that through other areas, but fellowship almost brings all that glue together because it's intense and it brings in, it it encourages you to reach out or branch out. Um, So 
I think if you're interested in really um, getting the whole picture of physical therapy, then fellowship should be something to consider. Yeah, Terry, I'd like to dive into the research a little bit here. But uh, in 2015, that study uh, that was in the JOSPT, it looked at outcomes with fellowship-trained PTs compared to residency and non-residency-trained PTs uh, with the conclusion stating that fellowship training may contribute to a statistically greater patient outcome. Uh, residency training did not appear to contribute to improve patient functional status change or efficiency, um, and it's unknown the statistical differences observed um, would be clin clinically meaningful for patients, right? So I know there's not too much research, or, or at least that I'm aware of this, uh, that really have been critical from, uh, you know, different standpoints um, and people who have gone through fellowship training. So my question is, you know, what are the pros of going through fellowship training and what are the limitations that you're hearing from recently graduated fellows about fellowship training in regards to clinical practice? Yeah, well, I also read that research as well. And it's also, it's gone back and forth uh, um, over, over the past couple decades. So it was nice to have some research saying that, um, that the time and the energy that you made uh, through, through that particular study might show a, a little bit of a, of, of a difference. Um, and I think in clinical practice, and I might be biased because I have a fellowship, but I do notice a difference um, that that we actually are able to see that big picture a little bit more. And I think sometimes it's hard for research to be able to capture that big picture, um, in my opinion. Uh, so especially since we're dealing with, I, I think one of the, the, the pros uh, of fellowship is that you get to see that big picture a little bit more. And for me, I break it down into um, when you're looking at somebody, you can look at it like a clinical prediction role if you're, if you're studying from more of, a, you know, on, in the earlier stages. So you have that back pain and you don't have pain, pain below the knee and hip and internal rotation. And it's like, okay, or I do the prone instability test and a couple other tests. And that person looks like they're going to go into a stabilization program. So when you're first coming out, you have like this narrow window. And then as you start going through fellowship, I like have five different rules. I have like uh, the body uh, heals in a, in a, in a predictable ma manner. The anatomy doesn't lie. That we're prone to make errors in the clinic. Uh, so I have like these different rules that I make, and I think going through fellowship, you, you see your brain expanding a little bit more, that it's not this little set of rules, and everyone that you see has a different personality, and you could see the same condition, let's say it's a posterior lateral disc protrusion with a radiculopathy, and you can have five different people, and you would treat them five different ways with 60% of it being the same across the board, but that other 40% coming from your skill your mentoring and, and being able to uh, work with other peers who, who have, have seen that. I mean, I had uh, Earl Petman, who became a PT the year I was born. And I had Gail Malloy, who, who has been out for a while. So the pros of the fellowship journey, if, if, if you're doing it right, is enhancing those clinical reflection skills, expanding your toolbox, and, and, and being exposed to people who have seen a lot of this and, and get to open, expand your window a little bit more. So uh, for me, that, that's the, the big pros. And I think that um, the only con that I have uh, as far as the fellowship aspect is concerned is that it's just a lot of time. 
and it's a lot of energy. So, and uh, when you're going into clinical practice and you have, uh, it all depends on the, the, the clinic you work at. I'm fortunate to work at a clinic where it's a every 40 minute model. So I get a little bit of time to clinically reflect or I walk to work and back to work. So I get that time. But if you're in a, in a model where you're seeing a patient every 15 minutes, it's really hard to get that big picture because you don't have the time to clinically reflect because the next patient's coming in, the next patient's coming in. So I think that model or getting it into clinical practice, I think the hard things are be driven based on where you're employed and what your interpretation is of um, how eclectic your fellowship program might be in, in um, looking at what we definitely know as far as research is concerned. And does your program allow you to be like Diane would say, your clinic is your laboratory. Can you be creative in your clinic? Because I think that's where some of these discoveries will come and will foster better research uh, in the future. That is, that is really interesting, Terry. I know that when I was a student, one of my best mentors that I had in my, during my clinical experience was a gentleman who was trained. He went through two residencies and one fellowship, and his fellowship was in manual therapy. Um, I think it was through AOM, and it was pretty amazing to hear his clinical reasoning for everything, and he really taught me how to critically think through problems and really make sure that you're, that as you're treating a patient, you're thinking, well, why are you doing this? Why is the patient responding this way? What can I do to change it? And so based on what you just said, it kind of describes a little bit about what my thoughts initially were as a student, having somebody who was fellowship trained teach me during one of my clinical rotations. So then my next thought, or my next question to you, Terry, would be, what are your thoughts on the uh, fellowship application standards through ABPTRFE that will start in January 2020 that will now require physical therapists to complete a residency or obtain their board certification? Well, that's what their opinion is uh, this year, and I'm actually supportive of the OCS, and I actually haven't taken the examination, but it's actually on my bucket list over the next two years to take it because I'd like to support the American Physical Therapy Association. They've done a lot of work um, to help from things like uh, removing the Medicare cap, different things. They have to reach out in a lot of different areas. Um, there's always been this interesting balance between the APTA and uh, the American Academy or AOMT. Um, way back when, if you look at the history of, of um, manual therapy and orthopedics, there was a point where the APTA, uh, when Stan Paris wanted to start an orthopedic section, and the APTA didn't want to start an orthopedic section. And so at that same time, an international federation of manual therapists was uh, created um, there was a, a an, an inaugural meeting in the Canary Islands, like in in the in the, I think it was late 70s or early 80s, and and that's where their first conference was, and that's when you had the Maitland and 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 uh, and you had McKenzie and you had Caltonborn, so you had all these people coming in to create uh, this eclectic system coming, and so Stan Paris was the representative and 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 started creating the the U.S. part of that. And there was always been a bridge between the American Academy and the APTA. So in the APTA, I think that the, the board exam itself, um, from what I've heard and I've questioned a lot of my students, and it, it, it appears fair. It appears like it's a lot of 
evidence-based material. So I think it's a good foundation. So from, from, from two standpoints, one, to get that underlying foundation to make sure you don't lose your sight on research. And number two, to make sure that we support um, the board certification process through the APTA. I think that that's actually an, a good part for fellowship. My only concern is when you're calling people board certified who take a multiple choice test and you look at the requirements for fellowship completely and uh, I took 15 tests, two oral practical exams and umpteen courses to get my fellowship. And so I wish there was a way that they could still um, maybe let you audit that without hitting people with another $2,300 to take the exam who've already been through it. So. I know that was a long answer, but I think it, there was some perspective needed because there's always been this kind of back and forth between AOPT and the APTA. Yeah, no, totally. And I think, you know, it's interesting too, especially looking at, you know, some fellowship programs even now for the time being actually require OCS before that the individual perhaps completes the program. And, you know, I know that there's that study that looked from Flynn et al. that looked at kind of comparing residency and fellowship with outcomes. But I'm, I'm kind of really curious, just apart from, um, supporting APTA, which I'm all for, but is there any research that you've seen or anything that kind of says that OCS is correlated with improved outcomes as well? No, not that I've seen. Maybe they're doing some research right now, um, but not that I've seen. And then the people I've talked to who have taken it, they're, they're, they basically are saying that the, the, the OCS exam, they like the process of going through it. But I, I have a hard time seeing how that would translate into um, clinical care, uh, improve clinical care. It gives a good framework. But I don't know how that would translate into it. You need the mentoring time. And I am a little concerned that they're changing the fellowship hours where you can create a fellowship program uh, and from what we had read, you only needed one person who was a fellow in charge of the program. And then the mentoring can be done by people who were not fellows. Um, and that doesn't meet the IFOMP standards. And so I have a little bit of concern that uh, we're watering it down a little bit. Yeah, and I've heard that same thought as well. And as now some other people that I know have had some constructive feedback on that one too. But, you know, I'm kind of curious. I know this is kind of off the script here, but what do you mm -hmm. think regarding kind of that overall, like in terms of like the watering down, like specifically, like what do you think that would lead to? Well, my biggest concern is that uh, I, if I took all my fellowship hours through one particular person, fellowship wouldn't be worth it. My area of growth was seeing two or three different opinions coming through, but with a foundation of having to be able to go through a, a system, uh, this international system that, that IFOMP had guidelines with. Uh, so if all of a sudden you're doing it to make it more affordable and you have people who have um, clinical experience um, that they think is a, a equivalent, as long as we can get all those pieces in, it may work. But if you don't have people who are able to get to the fellowship program or haven't um, completed OCS, and I think that from my reading of it, you could have people who didn't complete the OCS and didn't, uh, uh, didn't complete a fellowship program, mentoring people in a fellowship program, I just don't, there's a disconnect to me there. And so I don't think we'll have this unified picture 
like I see when I go to the uh, IFOM conferences or the AOM conferences, where it's like you have this common core of people with a message wanting to elevate the profession to the highest level. And part of that was that journey through fellowship. So, Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's interesting. I'm kind of curious to see what will happen with, you know, in 2020 with those requirements, because I mean, from just a person like in my seat who's perhaps looked into fellowship programs, you know, and strictly from a cost perspective, it definitely looks like getting the OCS before would actually be the more the cheaper way to go about it proceed besides go to a residency. And my hope is that it wouldn't discourage people from going the residency route because it's more expensive on average. Yeah, I agree. And it depends how people run the residency programs too. Um, the One of the interesting thing about the rule changes is that if you were in the residency program, now you could transfer some of those hours into fellowship where last year you couldn't. So then all of a sudden you'd have to pay for all those residency hours and then pay for additional fellowship hours. Now you can transfer some of them over from what I understood. So I think that was the trade-off maybe. Yeah, no, interest, no, no, that's very interesting. I think that brings a lot of perspective. And, you know, Terry, to kind of switch gears to kind of get onto the topic today um, about teaching within the program, you know, you know, Terry, for those who have never done teaching within a fellowship program, do you think you could walk us through kind of the process of what that entails from like how scheduling the courses works, traveling, lodging, class prep, teaching the class, the after class aspects, just to kind of get an overall view of kind of what it actually all entails? Sure. Um, and I'm not sure how other programs do it. So in, in, in our program, like I'm an independent contractor uh, uh, through NIOPT. And so already right now, I'm starting to plan out my 2019 schedule so that by June, I'll have all of 2019 figured out. So for me, I book aside somewhere between 15 to 19 weekends a year to teach. And that probably is a little bit more than some. Um, so for me, that means I have to have the curriculum for the courses I teach. And currently, I, I don't teach our upper level courses, but I do teach, there's um, seven foundational courses that I teach, cervical one, cervical two, lumbar one, lumbar two, thoracic, upper extremity, lower extremity, and I'm an examiner. So I have to make sure that I am set for whatever course I'm teaching. That's as far as presentations are concerned. We have a uniform manual across the board that we can teach out of. So there's a lot of uh, preparation as far as that's concerned, as, as far as content. And then also staying on top of that particular content because I want to make sure that I can present the latest research. So I'm not teaching, you know, the, I, I have an 80-20 rule or a 70-30 rule that 70% of what I teach, I probably will be teaching similar to 80% in five years. But research is changing, so our system keeps that open. So as far as prep, there, it, it's kind of a big uh, picture. And then what I need to do is call every location. So for me, I teach in New York City, Baltimore, Orlando, Boston, Portland, Maine. Uh, and next year, I'm going to San Diego. And I was fortunate enough to go to Italy last year. So then once you line up the courses you're teaching, you've got to figure out logistically, okay, I have to go here this weekend. How, that, how is that going to affect me uh, on my next weekend? And then you put in the holidays, kids events, so it gets a little bit busy. And as I said, preparation is an ongoing process for me um, to work on the new research. And then I try to look ahead, too, because there's APTA conventions. Uh, um, I, 
um, speak a couple times a year at the um, at the the SIG for uh, Boston sometimes or sometimes in New Hampshire they have a lecture series so I look ahead to see what evenings I can go and when is a pub night you know we gotta have fun so when when there when is there a local pub night maybe I can go there as well so there's that part of it and then there's your communication with your students as well so that's through emails um, Facebook posts we do a lot of Facebook posts I'm active on Twitter. Um, so I know that's a lot, it seems to be a lot, but I have some structured time to be able to dedicate to all those purposes. As far as travel and lodging is concerned, um, I usually, it, it's a mix. Sometimes I have friends that are in the area. I have a good friend in Baltimore. I stay at his place. I have a good friend in, uh, in Boston, so I stay at their place. So sometimes I'm at a hotel. Sometimes I'm hanging out with my friend and his family after the class. So uh, it's, a, it's a mixture. Yeah, Terry, uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about the pros of working and educating within a major PT fellowship program? Yes. Um, so part of uh, when I started doing this, um, the, the big pro for me is that I get to uh, get energy for the profession every time I teach because I think those, I don't know, those of us who have been teaching for a while, I don't feel like I'm, it's like a one-way street where I'm just imparting knowledge upon the people that I teach. I get that energy back as I see um, newer grads coming in or people who've been out for as long as I have uh, attending the courses. So one of the pros is that you get that lift and that hope for the profession. Because sometimes when you're working in the clinic and it's like, oh, I have to fight for another two visits for this patient and I'm not sure why, or you know, you get, get, you feel like you're on the hamster wheel a little bit that it's a nice little break. Um, so, and so I get energized with that and it makes me uh, stay up to date with, with the research. So it tries, I, I always uh, let, um, well, one of my theories in life was that if you're in a profession and even, you know, even at fellowship and teaching, it's kind of like, I don't know if people roller skate anymore, rollerblade, but if, if you are rollerblading and you're, you're moving, uh, you're not moving and you're going um, you must be, if you're moving, but your feet aren't, then you're going downhill. So I always feel like you're always trying to work your way up. So one of the pros is that that just keeps you relevant in the profession and see, see uh, what's going on. The second part is the friendships. I mean, everywhere I go, I have uh, friends that, that I get to see on, on a consistent basis. So, and I've made so many friends over the past 20 years. One of my best friends out in Seattle, uh, we met at a North American Institute course in 1998. So we've known each other for 20 years. And if it wasn't for that, um, we wouldn't have been as close as her. So, I mean, there's friendships as well that, that uh, will last a lifetime. It, it sounds like there's a lot of really positive things that you've gotten out of fellowship both with being in fellowship and teaching fellowship. Is there any cons with working in a major PT fellowship program? I think it's the, 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 the biggest con for me is, uh, that is obtaining that work-life balance, where if you're teaching in a fellowship program, as I said, I'm working on my 2019 schedule. So I am, I, we pretty much have set, my kids do swimming, my daughter does ballet, uh, my son um, was just in a, in a play, and so I try to project ahead to make sure I pick the weekends w which won't be performance weekends or, or, or big state meets. So one of the cons is when you have that conflict where you're like, oh, I didn't know you were going to do that, and it's that weekend. 
so then it's it's uh, try you you miss some things sometimes, and and we try our best not to. And I have a very understanding family, um, so so that makes it a little difficult. But on the flip side, um, I was able to teach in Milan and Rome last year, and my family came with me. So it's it's getting that balance too. And the only other con is uh, is just finding the time to be able to keep up with everything. So that's the, it's like, oh, I have a meeting, uh, you know, at 10 o'clock tonight for the, for, uh, for NIAMP to make sure that we're all on the same page. So I think most of it is, is just a time thing, but everything in its individuality in my, my standpoint is actually really pretty amazing at this point. Um, to get there, the, the con was just the, the cost, both time and, and, and. So Terry, I think that it's really interesting what you were just saying, and I'm curious, you mentioned a lot about work-life balance, and I'm curious as a young PT, um, what is your advice to people like me and Brandon and Scott on work-life balance, and is that even attainable? I, I think it is obtainable, and I know that we made a lot of changes in the North American Institute system uh, to try to make that obtainable. So back when I took it, I mean, some of my classes, I would leave the whole week. So I would start my first class on a Sunday and end on Friday. And what we have done is created modules of um, all our classes are two-day live hands-on classes. And then we have online classes, uh, online components of it. And we're trying to get each module somewhere between 10, no more than 15 minutes so that you can watch it on your phone. Or something like that. So we're trying to take the essence of what we have and break it down into to packets, so that all of a sudden you don't have to give up a three-day weekend. Um, another thing we're, we we played around with is to do a, a Friday Saturday, so that people would have a Sunday off, both the faculty member and the participant in the course, instead of working five days, going to a two-day course, and then working another five days, because most employers don't give that day off. So. I think you can do it uh, as far as just doing the coursework. The other part of um, that is uh, I've never let a continuing education dollar go to waste. And so I think when you're first starting out, um, sometimes you're looking at a place that you're going to work and um, you want to look at the mentoring available there and what they offer for continuing education. So, because sometimes we focus on salary and then it's all of a sudden you end up working for, I know a lot of people who work for a, a hospital based system locally and they have to beg for more, you know, basically a couple hundred dollars of continuing education where you work for other places and they give you $2,000 a year for continuing education. So, coming out. Um, being able to look ahead and say, okay, I need a place that's going to support me through mentoring, um, through continuing education dollars, uh, for maybe giving me a couple paid days off to do continuing education. So what got me through was, was looking at places that afforded that. And then um, I'm part of a system that was really generous with some sweat equity as well, meaning that um, I helped Earl Petman with his manipulation book because he couldn't get it formatted or organized in a certain way because of what I had mentioned. Now that I'm teaching, I can see the pressures he was under. And so I gave up time. I didn't get paid for that. But he was like, come to my clinic anytime and spend a week. So, and that was a good trade-off. So, um, and he offered to pay me, but I said, no, I just would like access. So I think if you get involved with a system that is 
understanding of this. And you know things are going to cost. You know, we can't all do this for free. But looking ahead and, and trying to take advantages of those little opportunities, then that just builds over time. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think that was actually a perfect segue to my next question because, you know, in the past we had Eric Dinkins from Mulligan on the show to kind of talk about kind of his perspective just teaching as an instructor within Mulligan. And, you know, the question that I got for you is because, you know, something that does need to be considered for someone who wants to consider going into teaching within a fellowship program or maybe any professional, any education um, company for that matter are kind of involving kind of some of the salary and some of the financial incentives that are involved with that. And, you know, I realize without giving any big numbers or personal stuff away, um, do you think you could kind of tell us kind of about the salary and financial incentives that you get for kind of teaching within the fellowship program? Sure. And, and this is where NIAMP is a little bit different. And I remember learning from Earl. It's like uh, what NIAMP does is they, they set their payment structure based on what an average, well, what a, what a PT owner would make for a day in the clinic, essentially. So it's not just what you would get paid hourly as a staff PT, but kind of what, what a, uh, if you were an owner, because a lot of them were owners, what revenue would you generate in that day? And they, the way they tried to do it is they didn't want to incentivize people to teach and not be in the clinic. So our model might be a little bit different. So it, it, it can be a little bit of a lateral, but so you're getting paid slightly, I get paid slightly higher than I would in the clinic for sure, but it's one that doesn't make me be on the road all the time, then I lose my clinical skills. But there's a lot of opportunities that happen along the way. Um, I'll get asked to do uh, go to Baltimore for a week, for example, and mentor. So when I do that, I charge uh, what my hourly rate is in the clinic that I would lose. Um, uh, plus my expenses. Um, so there is a lot of incentive, you know, there are financial incentives along the way to, to be able to teach. And, and I think it's fair. Um, but I'm not, you know, I've heard of people who will go and charge a thousand dollars a day to be in somebody's clinic. And uh, I can't do that. I think because part of what we get into this for is I want the next generation to be excited about PT. And you're already burdened with a lot more debt than I was 20 years ago. So uh, I try to find that balance out a little bit. Or there's a huge discount if people come to my clinic because my patients get two for the price of one. So then I just charge for whatever my obligations are for paperwork at that time uh, in order to complete the, the, that. So I might be a little bit of an outlier when it comes to that. Um, but there are a lot of opportunities as you start doing it. But for me, it was going out late at night doing a SIG uh, in, uh, in Manchester, uh, New Hampshire, or in Boston, and then I get a random email. Um, Would you mind uh, coming in and doing a two-day course for us? Oh, great. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that, and then you get paid for that. So did that kind of answer the question? Yeah, absolutely, Terry. I think that's a really great insight on it. And like you said, I think it's it's a little bit more than just the the salary and incentive. I think it's the other doors that it opens and the other opportunities that it really opens, like you were talking about. So, um, and speaking of which, that's actually a great segue to my next question from a student aspect. But what do you think some of the uh, best ways are to leverage a fellowship training in the real world of physical therapy and even in business? Well, and. So I think that even now, as we we're just starting to see the tip of the iceberg as far as research is coming out, and um, and I think as we're asking the right questions, um, having that fellowship, then you can approach different businesses. Like here locally, we provide um, 
training over at Bath Ironworks, and Bath Ironworks makes the Navy destroyers. So we have the the nurse practitioners and physicians over there. I'll go over there and um, t- uh, train their staff on efficiently looking at musculoskeletal injuries. Um, so there's that opportunity, which an employer really likes that, uh, wow, here I have this person who can go and do do this and, and can go out and teach um, that way. Um, you get more comfortable going and speaking in public. So I do like local talks on back pain, you know, uh, you know, you know, MRIs are a very expensive selfie talk or something like that, letting the public know what we know that's going on uh, with that. Then all of a sudden you get your fellowship and you get to speak at local chapter meetings. And uh, some of those are paid and some of those are not paid. Or you get asked to uh, assist at a local university. And I just didn't have time. But So there's a lot of different ways you can leverage it. But I think sometimes it depends on your employer and how they look at you and how they value that. And it can be a win-win. Where When I'm out of the clinic, sometimes it's not a win for my employer when I'm not having a full caseload of patients. But it is a win because more patients will end up coming to our clinic. We've been hearing a lot for a push for standardization for residency and fellowship programs and DPT education and clinical education. And I'm wondering um, what you think the Goldilocks zone is when it comes to this level of standardization among fellowship programs and how AOMT, APTA, and um, IFOMPT play a role in the standardization and getting to that Goldilocks zone. And that's the important thing. I in in in, ter- in my ideal world, it's uh, I think we should all realize that there's no one keeper of the key as far as knowledge is. And and I think there I think there's a good 70 30 80 20 rule. And so that for me the, the as far as um, IFOMPT and AFOMPT or IFOMPT and AOMPT, they're they're almost on the same level because for the American Academy to be certified through IFOMPT, they have to follow the IFOMPT standards. So there's representatives that are sent and every four years they have meetings. So the last one was in Glasgow and the next one's in Melbourne. So that there's a really neat dialogue internationally. Crossing that bridge to the APTA, that's where it's a little bit difficult. And I think they have to, at some point, come to an 80% agreement um, with with what we want to present to the younger therapists uh, coming out. So for me, I think if you can agree about something 70 to 80% of the time, the other 30 is just things that maybe are unknown or not proven by research. And so... I, I think that's when you have to put your ego in check and say, hey, uh, we're really not sure. And I saw that on the, in, in the international level, but I haven't seen that cross over as much to the APTA, but I'm, I'm hoping that it will. So that um, the big thing is that when you have, you know, I'm part of NIOM, so I have an incentive for people to fill up my classes. But at the same time, EIM has a great program. Mulligan system is great. McKenzie has some great work as well, the Paris system. So when people come to our classes, there's a lot of really good carryover from those systems. So I'm not a, well, don't go and do that, come to NIOMT. And I think that's what we have to be able to do at the APTA and the AOMT level, given the history. 
Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting, especially to kind of hear how that kind of plays out and such. And, you know, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit, Terry, and kind of ask for this one here. So say for someone who perhaps is maybe thinking about teaching or going for a fellowship program to teach in eventually at some point, what advice would you give to someone who wants to teach within a fellowship program to A, make that happen and B, to be successful at it? I think what you have to do uh, if you want to teach in a fellowship program is recognize it early. Like I knew early on that I wanted to be part of the North American Institute and then um, realized that you could do some sweat equity along the way. So once I re- set on, once you settle on your system, and I recommend uh, it can get very costly if you go and like take a course from every single system. So sometimes what's better is go to an AOMP conference, or if you're fortunate enough, go to an IFOMP conference. I was lucky because mine was in, it was in Quebec City, so it was close to where I was uh, living in, in 2012. Once you settle on your system, really get to know the faculty and put yourself out there. I mean, for the North American Institute, when I started, I took a course and then you can lab assist for a course once you get through and you can take that course again. So then you start gathering hours and you're just giving up your time on that weekend when you go to assist for a course. And then don't feel like uh, it's too much of an overreach to offer your services. I think my best example was um, my uh, old boss in Seattle. His name's Mark Looper, and I have learned, I learned so much from him. He was a teacher for the McConnell Institute with Jenny McConnell, and she came and taught in Seattle, and was, I was filming the courses that she was doing because she was trying to get lab manuals going, and she was teaching a new course in London. And I joked with my boss. I said, okay, well, fly me out to London and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll film that for Jenny. And they did. And I didn't have to pay to go to London. And, and that was a good opportunity. But for me, it was just offering to be able to help out saying, you know what? I don't have a lot of money, but I can give you some time because I'm really invested in your system. So, and that's what really helps NIOMP grow too. We have uh, people coming up through our fellowship system that you might not have money, but you, you have some time in your intellect and experience. And, 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 and uh, the younger PTs, we need that. We need to breathe that in because that's what's going to help our, our profession grow. Yeah, that's a really great point on that, Terry. I love, I love that take. Um, you know, we like to ask all of our guests this final question. Um, and the question is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, uh, DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change and how would you go about changing it? I would change it to make sure that anyone teaching needs to treat a patient and have the students see it for most modules of what's going on. You have to get not a, uh, not a theoretical patient, but a patient that has context coming in and seeing that so that you get the real life examples of what's going on. Uh, I, I think that sometimes we get so bogged down on the one to 5% of things that will never come into the clinic. And I think it's really important to rule those things out. I'm big on differential diagnosis. And I've seen a lot of those one to 5% over 20 years. But I think that sometimes in healthcare education, we get a lot of people who are teaching and not treating. And I think we need to stretch that out a little bit and, and, and welcome patients into our classroom. Realize that we're going to make some mistakes 
while we're doing it and we're going to learn from those mistakes. We need to really embrace it and not just have, oh, we're doing our book work for this semester and then we'll send you out to have CIs and then coming back. So for me, that's what, what, what fellowship brought as well. It was like, wow, this person teaching, actually, when I watch them in the clinic, they're doing the same thing. And we need to get closer and closer with that. Then the researchers can ask better questions because it, it, the real questions will bubble to the surface. I think that that is a really cool idea. And I definitely agree with you on that, Terry, that seeing how I, I always admired my professors in PT school, observing them treat or having them have an example patient come up. And I always thought it was really cool to see. I'm sure a lot of people are really interested in where to find you. Do you have any uh, social media or any way that people can reach you after this podcast? Sure. Well, my uh, straight up email is Pratt, P-R-A-T-T at Niomt, N-A-I-O-M-T dot com. Um, I'm on Twitter and it's at Pratt Physio, P-R-A-T-T-P-H-Y-S-I-O. Um, if you go to the niomp.com website, there's a link for uh, some of the, uh, uh, for uh, in, a, in order to access me, or you can search under courses to see the courses that I, I uh, teach for the North American Institute. Um, and I am active on Twitter, and we also do a lot of posting on Facebook. So once every couple of weeks, uh, we'll take a live sh- shot in from the class, and, and uh, you get to see little um, segments of that. So that's probably the best way to be able to. If anyone has questions about fellowship or, or, or residency or um, any aspect of that, taking classes, not just me, but our whole institute, uh, we're a bunch of clinicians who are really excited. So um, if I'm not geographically close, there's a lot of other good faculty in the area as well. Thanks so much for your time, Terry. We appreciate it. Hey, thank you very much. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, as we greatly appreciate your support to help us advance healthcare education. We are very happy to announce that we have created a new tool to help develop clinicians into better experts. With that being said, we have created the HET Light Tool, which LIGHT stands for Learning Integrated Towards Expertise. And what we've done is we've taken our first year's worth of episodes with experts in the fields of healthcare and education, and we've taken one golden nugget or theory on expertise and presented it to you in a very easily consumable format so that people can take one lesson or nugget per week and map out and plan how to incorporate it into your clinical and educational practices. And by the end of the year, we think you'll be pleasantly surprised at how far you've progressed towards becoming an expert. To find out more, please check it out at pteducator.com slash H-E-T, which is also available in our show notes. Thank you again all for your continued support. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.